again. Welcome to Grace. We're so glad you guys are here. Welcome to those of you online. Let's pray one more time before we look at the Word together. Father, we need uh, your Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding <clears throat> of your Word. Not just your written Word, Lord, but we pray <clears throat> for illumination today to really have insight into the living Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at Psalm 2 for several weeks and seeing what God's end-time agenda is and what Satan's end-time agenda is out of Psalm 2. God's end-time agenda is to raise up a passionate people who are passionate for his son and want to fully follow his son, but also his part of his agenda is to set up his son in Jerusalem as the king of Jerusalem and the king of the world. That's God's end time agenda, but Satan's end time agenda is to oppose God's end time agenda, to resist it every way he can. And I think one of the things that's going to happen as end time days continue to unfold is we're going to see God fulfilling the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember, Jesus prayed that, that the, his followers would love him like the Father loves him. And so the Father is going to answer that prayer and raise up a, a people that are passionate for the Son of God. But I think what's going to be key is a revelation of who Jesus truly is for that to happen. I think that so many professing believers in Jesus have a Jesus that is way too small to be passionate about. You know, when I took my first missionary or ministry trip to Nepal, I saw Mount Everest for the first time. I saw Mount Everest as we flew over it. I saw Mount Everest on the, on the ground. And when I got back, my kids were, were real small at the time, and I kept telling, I was telling my children how gigantic Mount Everest is. And when I finished telling them how big it was, my daughter, who was four at the time, said, Jesus is bigger than that. And then she went through this phase, she went through this phase that no matter what I, anytime, anytime I described anything as big, she always would just chime in, but Jesus is bigger than that. For a lot of professing Christians, Jesus is just a little bit bigger than Buddha, or just a little bit bigger than Muhammad, or just a little bit bigger than Gandhi or Confucius. And I think it's really important, if we're going to be passionate for Christ, we've got to understand that he is way, way bigger than all that. In the Gospel of John, there's a question that Jesus is going to answer several times. And the question he's going to answer in the Gospel of John is, who are you? How he answers that in question is really important for us to understand. Now, when we get asked the question, who are you? We tend to just simply answer that question with our name. And, but the, really, the question is more than that, because when we give our name, we're basically saying what we're called. We're not really saying who we are. 
In the Bible, particularly in Old Testament days, when you were given a name, your name was both descriptive and also sometimes prophetic. The name was given describing you, what you're like. And so when you heard someone's name, you knew quite a bit about them, not just what they were called, you knew a little bit about what they were like. But also names that were given in the Old Testament were not only descriptive, but they were oftentimes prophetic about what you will become, what you will be like. So either descriptive and prophetic or both, describing what you are now like or describing what you will be like prophetically. So if someone asked you, you know, what your name was and you gave them a name, that they would, back in those days, they would learn a lot about you, what you really were, were like. Now we're going to look at a, a time in which Jesus has asked that question, who are you? And he's going to answer that question with a name. And that name is going to be way more than what he's called. It's going to be both descriptive and prophetic. Now, before we look at this account, I want to get a little background. Many of you are familiar with this background that we have this time before Moses is used by God to set the Israelites free from their 400 plus years of captivity in Egypt. Moses is in the wilderness and he encounters a burning bush, a bush that is burning but not being consumed. And then God speaks to Moses out of this burning bush and is about to give him his assignment. But remember what he said. Let's look at that. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. Now in this, in this passage, Moses is concerned that the people might ask a question. Now the question really is not, what do you call him? That was really not the question that the people were asking primarily when they said, what is his name? They wanted to know more about him than just what he's called. They wanted to know what is he like and what will he do? Well, God gives the answer that he is the God who is, but he's not just talking about existence here. To the Hebrew, to be does not just mean to exist. It means to be active to express, express oneself in active being. In other words, the God who acts. So remember, these people are in great need. They've been in captivity. And they need at this point to be reassured that this God would act. That he would meet their needs and he would, he would have, he'd prove his character and his promises he would keep. And so they need to know all these things, and all this is kind of wrapped up in the name that God tells Moses to tell them. He's effectively saying that he wants them to know that 
Their God is a God who will act on their behalf. Their God is a God who's present, but he's presently and, and he's actively involved in meeting where they are and what they need. Let me, let's look at another passage to see this spoken of even more so. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, this is God talking to Moses now. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. Now, anytime you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that is the name Yahweh. Therefore, say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There it is again, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I'll bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So this phrase, I am Yahweh, occurs three times. In these three verses. So God is identifying himself more than just what do you call me. He's identifying himself as the present deliverance for them. The one who would meet their needs just as his name implies. So Yahweh would show himself to be this ever-present help. An ever-present help. Whatever that need is time of trouble. He's the ever-present solution. He himself is the solution. He doesn't just have the solution. He is the solution. He's the solution now, and he will be the solution in the future when you need him to be. So this is the understanding of this name. It's descriptive and prophetic. Tells what God is like and what he will do. Now we're ready to go to John chapter 8 because Jesus is trying to explain to the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, who he is. There's a lot of confusion in this dialogue in John 8 about who Jesus is. Let's jump right into it. John 8 verse 25. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? So they're saying, who are you? With the emphasis on you. Who are you to be saying such things? John 8, 53, they say to Jesus, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Whom do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? Now, during this dialogue, there's much discussion about Abraham and their relationship to him as their father, generationally. Well, Jesus 
concludes his whole discussion. He he's wants to get right to the point and clarify some things. John 8, verse 56. He says, your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So this, again, totally mystifies these uh, Jewish leaders. I mean, they're, they're thinking at this point, like, what are you talking about? So Jesus is going to just jump right in and with a direct statement. And here's what he says. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now they get a picture. Jesus answers all of their questions about who are you or who do you think you are. He answers all those questions with a name. And it's not just a name. It's the name. The name Yahweh. He actually is using the name Yahweh of himself. And he's not only God, he is Abraham's God. And their God. Now, proof that they understood what he was saying is they, next, the next verse tells us this. Let's read it. John 8, 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, they know that Jesus just identified himself with that name, Yahweh. They're picking up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy. Blasphemy if you claim to be God and you're not, which is what they thought about Jesus. But Jesus was claiming to be God, and he was and is. So Jesus clearly identifies himself as Yahweh God. Which, by the way, this, this one passage blows away a hundred cults. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God's active effectiveness in the history of the world. At no other time and no other way was this reality of Yahweh being a real and present and experienced help in time of trouble than in the presence of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God has come in the flesh. We're entering this season of celebrating the incarnation. God becomes flesh. He is born a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. But he is Yahweh. He is this, he is this ever-present solution to our every need. That's what there's so much in this name. What Jesus is saying is simply this. All the things that are true of Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus now affirms are true about him. What is true of Yahweh is true of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is Yahweh. He is God coming flesh and blood. And it's this name Yahweh that tells us so much about Jesus. Remember again, this, this name is both descriptive and prophetic. Yahweh means essentially the God who acts and the God who will act. The God who rescues and redeems right now and the God who will rescue and redeem. 
the God who's present and working in my time of need right now, and the God who will be present and actively working in my time of need whenever it comes. He is ever-present solution for each one of us. Take, for example, the saving work of redemption. Here's what Jesus says, John 8, 24. He said, I, I, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the manifestation of Yahweh, God's active work on our behalf. If we don't believe that he is the activity of God to solve our sin problem, then we die in our sins. Because there's no other solution to the sin problem but Jesus. He is God's activity to solve that problem. His activity, Jesus' activity on the cross. See, the activity of God to solve the problem is Jesus. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. And there's no greater trouble that we have than the sin problem. And Jesus is a solution to it. By the way, if you're trusting for good works to get you into heaven, and, or, your, or lack of bad works to get you into heaven, or your good works outweighing your bad works to get you to heaven, then you're trusting in the wrong thing. You will die in your sins. There's only one activity that saves us from our sin problem, and that's the activity of Jesus. Or if, someone, if you're trusting in your religious experience that you had, you had some experience at some time, and that experience is what you're counting on to get you into heaven. If that is what you're counting on, then you will die in your sins. There's only one activity that saves us from our sin problem, and that is Jesus. His activity on the cross. If you think that your nationality or your heritage will get you to heaven like the Jews that Jesus was talking to in John chapter 8 thought, then you die in your sins because that activity will not get you into heaven. There's only one activity that gets us into heaven. That's the activity of Jesus. The only activity of God that provides an escape from the penalty of sin is Jesus Christ. That's all. That's the only way. Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh. Jesus is an ever-present solution to our every need. And there's no greater trouble facing mankind than the problem of the consequences of sin. And Jesus is the solution to that problem. But we must believe who he really is. That you must believe that I am. He is God come in the flesh. Yahweh. So many Christians have a Jesus that's way too small. And they wonder why they're walking around in such apathy. We must believe that Jesus is the ever-present solution to our, whatever our greatest needs are. Let's look at uh, how this works out even beyond the sinful situation, whatever our need is. Let's look at it in John chapter 6. John 6, starting verse 16 to verse 21. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. 
When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. And listen to this now. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So the disciples are in the boat and they're in a storm and they're struggling with these gusting winds and they are, they are rowing with all their might. They're anxious, they're afraid, and they are rowing. And here comes the ever-present help in time of trouble. Here comes the great I am. And they're frightened. And Jesus answers their difficulty with the storm and their question first by by identifying who he was, that he's the ever-present help in time of trouble. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. The solution to your problem is here. And when the ever-present solution gets in the boat, the problem's solved immediately. He doesn't just bring the solution, he is the solution. The problem solved when the solution gets in the boat. See, we tend to face our problems by, whatever your problem is, generally we tend to face our problems by becoming more and more anxious and rowing harder and harder. And then is the last option we finally call out to Jesus. When Jesus is the solution, he's the ever-present time of trouble. I think what happens a lot of time is we get in a situation where we have this terrible challenge or problem or crises, and what do we do? We're anxious, and we just row harder, and we row harder, and we don't really pray. We worry out loud to God. There is a difference between praying and worrying out loud. I'm not, you know, just worrying out loud. I mean, praying is saying, I am believing you. I am trusting in you for my situation. It's very different than just, oh, I can't, my situation is so bad. And so when the ever-present solution gets in a boat with you, then immediately the problem is solved here in the story we just read. Jesus is the solution. I think we need to understand that Jesus doesn't just have the solution. He is the solution. Let me explain this a little bit more. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this, this is the name of Yahweh several different times. Each time he says things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the life, the way, the vine. When he says that, he's using the name of Yahweh each time. He says, I am the bread of life. I am ever present to sustain you. My presence with you sustains you. It strengthens you. I'm the bread of life. It fills you. He fills us. I'm the light of the world. I'm ever present to illuminate you. Now, my nearness to him, I now am having understanding. I'm having insight. He is illuminating my understanding. I am the door. I'm ever present to admit you. I'm the good shepherd. I'm ever present to care for you. You notice how when you're drawn close to Jesus, you're not afraid? Because the good shepherd you drew close to, 
He is, you're, 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 you're experiencing his care. I am the life. I'm ever present to give you life, abundant life, satisfy you. I am the way. I'm ever present to guide you. I'm the vine. I'm ever present to make you truly productive. He's the ever-present solution to all of our needs, all our desires. You know, I was meditating on this some years ago, and it dawned on me that everything I ever needed and ever longed for and ever hoped for, I find in Jesus. He's the bread of life. When I'm, when I'm experiencing nearness with him, communion with him, praying, listening, worshiping, he restores me emotionally. He satisfies me spiritually. He fills my emptiness. He gives me strength. Courage and faith just rise up in those moments. Why? Because he is the bread of life. He doesn't just give me restoration and satisfaction. He is my restoration and satisfaction. Communion with Christ. He is the light. He is the light. He says, I am the light. So he's the one who brings revelation and illumination. Understand, I can't tell you how many times, just in the midst of, of worship and, and, and focusing on Jesus and communing with him, that all of a sudden I understand some things I didn't understand. The light turns on. I understand passages that I've been reading, and all of a sudden they come, they, they come to light. He's, he's, he, I am the light, he said. He said, I am the door. He settled all my sin account. He assures me heaven. He gives me peace right now. You know, and when I'm communing with him, I experience this joy and peace of my salvation. He said, I am the good shepherd. So as you're communing with him, you just you sense this, this no fear, this, this care that he's going to take care of things. I am the life. So he gives me satisfaction and abundancy in life. I taste the fullness. I mean, I have a taste of the fullness. The, the, the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come. That's the seven-course banquet. But every time I'm close to Jesus, I taste it. I don't get the full seven-course banquet. That's still to come, but I taste it. There's fullness of peace coming, but I taste the peace now. There's fullness of joy coming, but I'm with Jesus. I taste the joy now. He is the life. He's the way. He gives us guidance. When you draw near to Jesus, there's, there's so many times I've, I've, I've guidance questions, and a lot of times I, I, it's okay to ask, Lord, give me guidance. We do that all the time, but there's times, I can't tell me times I've just been worshiping, and all of a sudden I know what to do. I now know where to go because he is the way, and he's the vine. Nearest to him makes us productive. We don't just pray, Lord, now, I need you to help me with this ministry. No, I draw near to him, and his nearness makes me productive. I bear fruit. This, out of this intimate relationship flows my ability to bear fruit, to make a difference. Remember, apart from him, we can do nothing. So everything that we need, everything that we desire, everything that we hope for really flows out of Jesus. This is what's so amazing about him. That's why if you have way too small Jesus, you miss all this. He is the solution. He doesn't just have the solution. All we long for is not with Jesus. It is Jesus. And it's released. How is that released? It's released through our communion and our intimacy with him. As we draw near to Jesus, just because of who he is, 
All we truly need in our lives is released from him. He's the great I am. That's how big he is. Think about this. He's the, he's the resurrection and the life. Think about that for a second. He says, I am. I am. There he uses the name, the resurrection and the life. And I was thinking about a funny story that I heard many years ago. There was this, uh, this funeral director and this, this pastor of a small town that they actually worked together. So anytime there was a funeral they needed to do, they would just travel together, and they would, they would do the funeral together. And one time they'd, they'd done a couple in one day, and they're tired, and they're, they're driving back in the hearse. And the pastor said, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a nap back here. So he went back in the back of the hearse where the coffin normally is, but it's not there now. So he lays down to take a nap, and, and the funeral director pulls in to get gas. And it happened to be a gas station that actually had a gas station attendant. Well, the gas station attendant is refueling, and then and the pastor wakes up, and he stretches, and he looks and sees the gas station attendant, and he taps on the window. And this guy, he said, I've never seen anyone run so fast in all my life. He just took off <laughs> running. But why? Why? Because... In our world, people that are dead stay dead. I mean, so he, he was this whole idea just freaked him out, and he went off running. But Jesus comes on the scene. He's the resurrection and the life. He conquers death, and he conquers darkness. So how big is that? How big is your Jesus? So I want to ask you a question. Will you live with a big Jesus, or will you live with a small Jesus? You remember that movie that was many years ago, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? I think a lot of Christians live with a shrunken Jesus. Jesus is so big, if we start to believe how big he is, I believe that when we're in the midst of a horrible circumstance, and I believe we could line up and tell circumstances, many of us are in right now, that in the midst of a horrible circumstance, if I'm living with a big Jesus, then I can believe that before he's done with it, it's going to turn out good. I can be at peace right now about my situation, because that's how big my Jesus is, you know. You know, back in 1993, we had a team go to Bulgaria. Bulgaria had only been out of communism two years. And the team leader had some family issues. He couldn't go at the last minute. minute I went ahead and stepped in and was going to join the team later. But because the team had already left, I needed to just travel on my own and meet them there in South Bulgaria. And so I got on the plane, and I went. And when I finally arrived in Bulgaria, I had uh, I'd eaten something that really didn't settle with me. And I just, I got off that plane, I thought, I've got to find a bathroom fast. I got off the plane, and we're going through, you know, they had still had the old Soviet, you know, passport booths, and, and, and the guy's messing with me, playing games with me, he kept acting like that wasn't my picture, he's having fun with me, and I'm like, I just got to go to the bathroom. And so finally, he, he stamps it, and then I got to go get my bags, and finally get the bags, and, and I finally enter out into the airport, where I'm just looking for a bathroom, in full panic, and 50 cab drivers, literally 50, came at me, they're grabbing my bags, they're all speaking, no one speaks English, speaking Bulgarian, and they all want to know where to take me, and I'm just like, all I want to know is where the bathroom is. So I finally know you got to go downstairs. I run downstairs, and there's this Bulgarian lady sitting outside the bathroom with a little place you're supposed to put money to go to the bathroom, and she, and she looked like she probably was a shot putter or something from Bulgaria. <laughs> anyway, and so I was like, and she's got this stack of tissues, and I'm like, so I ran back up to change money. I ran back up. The money changing place has like acrylic booth. And so everyone gets to see how much money you're changing. So all 50 cab drivers are now looking at what I'm changing. I put, you know, some, you know a bunch of money down. They give me Bulgarian money. I don't even know how it works yet. I don't even care. I got to go to the bathroom. I run back downstairs. I put down some money there. I might have paid her a year's wages. I have no idea. <laughs> I grab the tissue. 
I ran in there. I finally came out, and I'm like, okay, now where are my suitcases? And they finally, they all had a fight over who's going to get them. One guy got them. And then I lost the address of where I was supposed to go. And so all I remember is there's some place downtown Sophia that's got these two big lion statues. So I'm acting out lion, lion statues to the cab drivers. They're talking, trying to figure out where he, what he means. One guy says, oh, I know. And so he takes me. We head to this place where I can catch a bus. It's going to be a three-hour bus ride. I get there. I get the bus ticket. said, great. Everything's calm now. I just wait for the bus. But it's going to be two hours, and there's a flea market, so I'll take a walk. I walk to the flea market. The Bulgarians and Turks well, you know, hate each other. They, a big fight breaks out. I'm in the middle of it. They're throwing stuff. I'm dodging things. Finally, I thought, i got to get back to the bus. I get back to the bus. Great, it's time to get on the bus. I go get, to get my seat. I have seat 50. I go, seat 50, there's a lady sitting in my seat. She's another Bulgarian shot putter. So <laughs> I show her my number, and she shows me a duplicate, the exact same number, the only one on the bus. So now what am I going to do? Well, the whole bus becomes in a conversation, yelling at her to give me, my, her, give me the seat. So they're yelling, yelling. She finally gets up and looks at me like she hates me, and she leaves. And I get my seat, and I go, okay, let's just get to the city. So we three-hour bus ride, and we get there, and I meet with the team. We're showing the Jesus movie in the town square. And the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, sends out some thugs to get all of our equipment and take it, and take it away because they didn't want to show in the movie. So, I mean, one thing after another is going wrong. And then finally, we lead some Bulgarians and some Turks to Christ. We get them together. We find out they don't want to be together. They hate each other. So we're like, what do we do? This whole thing has been one disaster after another, Jesus. And so we finally, I, I learned that there is a Turkish quarter. It's called the Turkish Gypsy Quarter of, of Kurdsley. And, and so I'm like, hey, let's go share the gospel there. And the Bulgarians didn't want to go there. It was across the street from the Bulgarian church. And I asked them, has anyone ever been there? Has anyone crossed the street and gone into that neighborhood? None of them ever have. I said, I, I just need someone to translate. We're going in there with the Jesus movie. And they're like, fine. So I got a translator. We take the Jesus movie in there. We go up there, and, and it, was, it was horrible. The stench of urine was overwhelming. And, and yet these people came out, and they wanted to know why we were there. Because we wanted to show them a movie about Jesus. One of the leaders of the village, the area, said, I'll take care of it. He got the whole quarter to come to the movie. We showed the Jesus movie. At the end of the Jesus movie, we asked how many people want to follow Jesus. 30 people start standing up in front of all their friends and neighbors, all out of Muslim backgrounds. And so we end up having 30 believers. We found a couple from Australia that was serving Istanbul as missionaries for seven years, hadn't led one convert to Christ. We said, we got 30 here. They came over and started a church. I, I tell you all that just to tell you that everything, it looked like everything was going wrong. And I know that some of the things going wrong in your in challenges in your lives right now are, are a lot worse than that. I understand that. I don't want to you know, you know, act like I don't understand the pain that some of you are going through. But I just want you to know that Jesus can take everything that's going wrong, and the time he's done makes something beautiful. That's how big he is. That's how big Jesus is. He's your ever-present help in time of trouble. So how big is your Jesus? Let me tell you how big Jesus is. He's so big, he can hold the entire universe in the palm of his hand. He's so big, he created everything with the word of his mouth. Just one word, everything came into being. And the galaxies were flung into space because Jesus spoke a word. How big is Jesus? He's so big that 
Storms ceased when he said a word. They died down. Fish were multiplied. The lame leaped for joy. The blind had their eyes open and saw demons, and death ran for their lives. He's so big that when he went to the cross, think about this, the entire universe held its breath. Time stopped. History was suspended, and he brought about the reconciliation of the entire created order through the shedding of his blood. He's so big that when he went to the tomb, into the grave. The grave couldn't hold him. Three days later, he started pecking on the glass. The guards ran and the demons ran. They've been running ever since for 2,000 years. He's so big, he's numbered every hair on your head. He's so big, he's counted every tear you've ever shed, every breath you've ever inhaled, every hope you ever cherished. He's so big that right now he's surrounding your chair. He'll surround your car on the way home when you leave. He'll surround your bed tonight when you sleep. He's so big, he'll be a shield around you from the moment, this moment to the day that he comes to present you holy and blameless before our Heavenly Father. That's how big he is. The Bible tells us he's the Alpha and the Omega, the bright morning star, the cornerstone of the church, the desire of the nations, the friend that sticks closer than a brother, the great high priest and the Holy Son of God. He's the lily of the valley, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the pearl of great price, the rose of Sharon, the wonderful counselor, the worthy lamb, and the savior of all mankind. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally gracious. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He is august, and he is unique. He is unparalleled, and he's unprecedented. He's undisputed, and he's undefiled. He's unsurpassed, and he's unshakable. He forgives, and he forgets. He creates, and he cleanses. He restores, and he rebuilds. He heals, and he helps. He reconciles, and he redeems. He comforts, and he carries. He lifts, and he loves. He's the God of the second chance, the fat chance, the slim chance, and the no chance. He discharges the debtors, delivers the captives, defends the feeble, blesses the young, serves the unfortunate, regards the aged, rewards the diligent, beautifies the meek. He cleansed my sin, removed my guilt, broke my habit, dissolved my anger, uprooted my bitterness, filled my emptiness, and restored my joy. His life is matchless and his goodness is limitless. His mercy is enough, and his grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. He is indestructible, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible, he's inescapable. He's invincible, he's irresistible, he's irrefutable. I can't get him out of my mind, I can't get him out of my heart, I can't outlive him, and I can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but found they couldn't stop him. Satan tried to tempt him, but found he couldn't trip him. Pilate examined him on trial, but found he couldn't fault him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. He had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. He is the lion, he is the lamb, he is God, and he is man. He's the king of the Jews, that's a racial king. He's the king of Israel, that's a national king. He's the king of righteousness, that's a moral king. He's the king of the ages, that's an eternal king. He's the king of heaven, that's a universal king. He's the king of glory. That's the celestial king. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's how big 
Jesus is. Hallelujah. Let's all stand for a moment. I'll tell you how big he is. He's ever-present help in time of trouble. He's big enough to handle whatever you're going through today. And he's big enough to handle whatever you're going to go through tomorrow. Whatever you go through next week, next month, next year. He's big enough to take care of it all. And I think some of us would have to admit that we tend to shift from this view we have right this moment to a small Jesus that we cannot trust with our situation. So today we're going to close with this ministry time just to say, some of us, I think we just need to kind of go back to this big Jesus who's big enough to handle our situation. So during this closing time, if there's, you, just, you know, just want to come forward and say, Lord, I just, first of all, I confess that you've been too small in my eyes. And I, I'm trusting you as a big Jesus. Or just saying, Lord, I took, I took this back, and I'm worried about it again, and I'm anxious about it again, and I'm frustrated again. But you're big enough to handle it, I'm giving it back to you. I'm giving it back to you today. So during this song, if that's you, just come down and just give it to Jesus. He's big enough to handle it. So come quickly as we, as we close in just a moment and give it to Jesus. He's big enough to take care of it. Go ahead and come. to Jesus. He's big enough. come down and begin to just pray for these down front. Would you please just come lay a hand on the shoulder. Just pray for them. We trust you, Jesus. You're big enough for it.
trust you, Lord. We trust you, Lord. We just give all these burdens, we give them all to you. An ever-present help, our solution right now in our time of need. We thank you. We trust you. We love you. We so look forward to seeing you face-to-face. We commit all these things to you, Jesus. You're big enough to handle them. In your name we pray. Everybody says? Amen.